Welcome to Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes. And that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the backlash against gentrification and kidnapping executives. Our first speaker will be Mitchell Schwartzer, who is a professor of architectural and urban history at California College of the Arts. Mitchell is the author of Hellatown, Oakland's History of Development and Disruption. Mitchell will discuss why both the wealthy and the poor oppose new building and change in Oakland. The not in my backyard has become the mantra in Oakland and the state of California, limiting growth, driving up real estate values that results in out-migration. Our second speaker will be Tom Sancton, who is the author of a new book, The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire. The book is amazing, fast-paced, and a joy to read. It is a fascinating nonfiction true story about the kidnapping of one of France's leading industrialists. You're about to find out why Wada was targeted for kidnapping, why his family didn't pay the ransom, how his reputation was tarnished, and why the kidnapping changed his life. Buckle up. If you missed it, check out last week's program on the war in Ukraine. It got rave reviews. One listener said he learned more in six minutes than watching 20 hours of TV on the war. Our first speaker was Anthony King, a professor of war. He discussed how the increasing number of Russian casualties will undermine the resolve to take offensive action and that the near-term supply of weapons will decide the war. Our second speaker was retired General Paul Kern, former commanding general of the Army Material Command. Paul explained how the U.S. Army has perfected the art of resupply by rail, land, air, and sea, and how we plan to resupply Ukraine. Our final speaker was Angela Stent, a Georgetown professor and author of Putin's World. Angela discussed Putin's perspective on the war. I use interns to help me prepare the podcast and are looking to hire a new batch of interns for the summer. Historically, the interns have been seniors in high school, college students, or recent graduates. Interns will read assigned books to decide if they are show-worthy. We will review last week's show to figure out how to make it better. And interns will be exposed to all aspects of podcasting. Please let me know if you're interested. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, What Happens Next in Six Minutes.com, and you can listen on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Let's begin now with our first speaker, Mitchell Schwartzer. The story I'm about to tell is from my book, Hellatown Oakland's History of Development and Displacement. From 2016 to 2018, five arson fires were intentionally set at residential construction sites in Oakland, California and nearby Emeryville. They were lit at a point in the construction process when the rising wood frames had not yet been protected by a sprinkler system. In late November of 2018, a handyman, Dustin Bellinger, was arrested and eventually sentenced to five years in prison. The fire stopped, but a great deal of damage had been done. Developers had to start over, and the long delay in construction, alongside higher insurance and security costs, jacked up pricing for the 500 apartments. While most people decried the arsons, some applauded the destruction of what one Twitter user called gross, expensive condos. Smaller acts of vandalism, busting windows or spraying graffiti, the fires were the extreme end of a grassroots protest against building market-rate housing in a city experiencing a dire housing shortage. A new phenomenon was born, nimbyism not in my backyard, traces to the early 1960s and battles for local control over neighborhoods. Under siege by grandiose plans, urban renewal, limited access highways, 
office skyscrapers. Over time, the battle for local control over neighborhoods, NIMBYism, burned most brightly in upper-class districts, an apartment building on or near a single-family street, a chain or franchise replacing a mom-and-pop store, greater density, traffic congestion, and introduction of unwanted outsiders. Recent Oakland NIMBYism among the poor and working classes too represents a demand for local control over neighborhoods faced with disruptive forces. New market rate housing is today's principal culprit because many fear that the introduction of more affluent residents will supplant those unable to afford Oakland's increasingly unaffordable housing prices. Other improvements to a neighborhood are also out of favor. Bike lanes, improved transit lines, better landscaped streets, cafes, yoga studios. Why? Because these accessories signal an influx of gentrifiers. The more educated and affluent, usually white and Asian folks, whose presence will lead to the exodus of Black and Latino residents who cannot afford the new housing equation. This nimbyism aims to keep the remaining poor and working class of the East Bay unattractive to developers and gentrifiers. Better to have less investment, less improvements, less good services, since they would all lead to rising house prices and the need for people to relocate from Oakland inland toward the Central Valley. NIMBYism for the poor and working classes in Oakland appears committed to keeping the neighborhood torpor going and demanding an increase in the supply of affordable housing absent those marketplace mechanisms that are central to the nation's system of housing production. Your book tells the story of Oakland struggling with deindustrialization, desperate for new investment, young enterprising people, racial integration, and real estate development. Yet in your opening remarks, Oakland is having a renaissance, but some people would prefer slum-like conditions to gentrification, economic opportunity, and change. Oakland, early 20th century, was a period of great promise. Competition with San Francisco, the thought that, oh, the flatter, warmer East Bay would become the big city in the Bay Area, not San Francisco. It didn't happen, but Oakland prospered. Industry came. There was a lot of growth of population, a lot of development of all sorts of buildings. And that culminated really in the Second World War, which brought forth the first large-scale migration of non-white people to Oakland. Oakland, in 1940, was 94% white. From 1940 to 1980, Oakland goes from 2.6% Black to almost 49% Black. They came for the war industries and to get out of the South from Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. The tragedy of the post-war years is deindustrialization. Shipbuilding, automobile assembly, canneries moved out of town or they moved overseas. Oakland lost its industrial employment. And a city that's half Black has high unemployment levels and the corresponding urban ills that go alongside those. When Jerry Brown was elected mayor in 1998, Brown's strategy was to bring in affluent residents and revitalize downtown and hopefully then start having spinoff effects in the rest of the city. It went all too well. Home values have skyrocketed. A house like I live in in the Oakland foothills You could have bought it in 1995 for about $250,000, and now they're running over $2 million. Rents have gone up correspondingly. The city has become very expensive because of the proximity to San Francisco and Silicon Valley. 
A lot of businesses moved from San Francisco to Oakland, including PG&E, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, the Sierra Club, Sunset Magazine. A lot of architects and engineering and planning offices moved to Oakland because San Francisco was so expensive. And similarly, residents were moving to Oakland during the same period. I myself moved in 2002 from San Francisco. Your description of Oakland reminds me of the Brooklyn Renaissance, which may be apt since many of our listeners live on the East Coast. Brooklyn didn't have many new office buildings. It was run down. There was white flight to Long Island because of poor public schools and crime. I moved to Brooklyn Heights after college in 1987 and lived there for five years. It was just two subway stops from Wall Street and Solomon Brothers, and the rent was much cheaper than the Upper East Side. Kay Hyman would spoke on this program about gentrification of Brooklyn, and this is where young people want to live. Can you imagine if the community had prevented Brooklyn's development? Why would you want to celebrate arson of a new building? Why do you want to stop growth? The conundrum is that the people who can't afford the new housing in Oakland, they feel they're being pushed out, and there's a lot of anger toward that. Oakland's really inherited political radicalism from Berkeley and somewhat even from San Francisco. You have a strong left-leaning reaction against new development, against the kind of people that come into Oakland. I was at my cousin's wedding last weekend in San Francisco, and there's a big homeless problem there. How was it in Oakland? Homeless people, they've become omnipresent in the last five years. Ten cities located along transit corridors, under freeways, on top of parks. Is there rampant residential construction given the increasing housing demand? I read a statistic that for every six jobs that are created in the Bay Area, there's only one housing unit built. Our housing deficit grows and contributes to the rising prices, which make the Bay Area the most expensive metropolitan area. I have friends, one works at Facebook, one works at Rivian. They can't afford a house in Palo Alto. Once Palo Alto and San Francisco become supremely expensive, the overflow starts to move to the East Bay. Oakland's one of the logical places. The NIMBYs in the foothills and upper hills don't want denser housing in their neighborhoods. And now the poor residents in the Flatlands don't want it because they see it's going to lead to gentrification. Professor Ed Glazer spoke on what happens next. He's the departmental head of economics at Harvard. He pointed out that California used to allow residential real estate construction. California was the fastest-growing state with average home prices. Today, there's little building because of zoning and other governmental impediments to building. Real estate prices are now sky-high, and there's migration out of the state. Why has NIMBY, or not in your backyard, become the mantra of that state? People arrive in California, it's beautiful, and they wanted to stay the way it was when they arrived. This is the case with a lot of people in San Francisco and Berkeley, and Oakland increasingly. California had a bill passed in 1972, CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, which mandates environmental review for a whole range of projects. CEQA is wielded by the anti-growth forces to stop development or to scale it back by lengthening the process or by making it so difficult that people give up altogether. People are like, let's scale it back, let's go slower, let's preserve the neighborhood character, we like things the way it is. Howard Husock spoke on what happens next regarding his new book, The Poor Side of Town. He mentioned the market-based solutions for building large-scale, affordable, working-class bungalows in Oakland in the 1920s without government interference. What happened? 
Why won't locals allow land use in its most efficient way to create denser communities driving down price? It's more than zoning. There's not a lot of land, buildable land. It's not like Houston or Dallas, which just goes on and on. And there's really no impediments. To get to the Central Valley, you have to cross a couple mountain passes. Then this whole process of suing and environmental review has lengthened development process considerably. Let's talk demographics. As you said, in 1940, Oakland was 95% white. By 1990, it was 44% black, 14% Hispanic, 14% Asian, and 32% white. And 30 years later, despite the dreaded gentrification, the white population has actually fallen to 30%. The African-American population has collapsed from 44 to 23%. Hispanics have replaced African-Americans. Asians are steady around 15% over the period. Cities change. They don't stay static. They change based on larger socioeconomic trends that are going on around them. I was born in Chicago. Like Oakland, there was a major in-migration of African-Americans from the South during the 40s to the 60s. Chicago had been a white city, but after the white flight to the suburbs, Chicago population fell in absolute terms. African-Americans came to Chicago for jobs, physical safety, and the promise of a better education for their kids. But many didn't work out that well. Jobs disappeared, crime was high, with many homicides, and schools where kids didn't learn. Blacks are leaving Chicago in droves. For the past 20 years, 10,000 African-Americans abandon Chicago annually, and 800 are homicide victims. That is 1% of Blacks move away each year, and 1 in 1,000 are murdered. Meanwhile, Hispanics are moving to Chicago big time. There are now more Hispanics than Blacks in Chicago, and given birth and migration patterns, Chicago will be majority Hispanic in the near future. This Chicago experience reminds me of Oakland, similar ongoing Black exodus and a Hispanic influx. I lived in Chicago for close to five years. I taught at University of Illinois. The similarities are there. Black migration out of the city for reasons of safety and better schools and better housing. Oakland schools have underperformed just like Chicago schools. If the Bay Area remains a very hot white-collar economy, in 20 years, most of Oakland will be affluent. It will transform, like Brooklyn has, to a greater degree than Chicago, because I think the forces are so much stronger in New York and the Bay Area. The working class are going to be pushed out. Next topic, sister cities. Oakland was the rollover city for San Francisco where land was cheaper and large swaths were zoned industrial. There are several examples of sister cities foundering. Gary, Indiana, Newark, Camden, and East St. Louis each went into long-term decline. Why have sister cities struggled and what makes Oakland different? Oakland is a combination of Detroit and Marin County in the same city. You don't see that in Gary or Camden or East St. Louis or Newark. Oakland was acting like the well-to-do suburbs, like Montclair, there's a neighborhood, similar population, similar types of houses, similar types of businesses. So it's a kind of combination city. And then you add to that equation Berkeley. None of those other cities have Berkeley right next to them, this intellectual powerhouse city. Innovations in architecture, in environmental policy, these are all Berkeley phenomena. Berkeley is known for its leftist politics does this explain why the Black Panthers organization's roots are in Oakland? The Black Panthers never would have happened if not for the proximity to Berkeley. It was that interaction between the student radicals in Berkeley and Merritt College, which was a community college in North Oakland, 
became the hotbed. That's where Huey Newton and Bobby Seale went, and that's where the Panthers began in 1966. So the synergy between Berkeley and Oakland makes Oakland very special. Has there been substantial rioting in Oakland? Yes, there was. I mean, it was nothing like the Los Angeles riots. The Los Angeles riots were harrowing. They occurred all over the city, block after block of burning. Each time there were police killings, there would be protests, peaceful in the daytime, and then when night came, there would start to be breaking windows of banks or stores downtown. The Occupy movement in Oakland in the early 2010s was the most militant. They occupied City Hall Plaza for months and months. Next topic is property crime. I was in San Francisco last week and having lunch with a buddy of mine at an outdoor cafe in the nicest residential area in town. When my friend found out that I left my luggage and valuables in the trunk of my rental car, he was totally panicked. In San Francisco, the local district attorney no longer enforces property crimes and criminals break car windows and take everything with impunity. It's to the point now where nobody leaves anything in the car and they keep their windows open, better letting some rain than have a broken window. Has Oakland been ravaged by similar property crimes and a breakdown in its civil order? There was an article today in the newspaper that certain people were having their mountain bikes stolen in the hills while they were riding at gunpoint. Oakland has had several TV news crews held up at gunpoint and they stole their cameras and video equipment. Crime is really bad around the Bay Area since mid-pandemic. But the biggest issue is that you have overzealous policing, right, shooting black men all around the country. And so the Rudy Giuliani break no windows, that policing philosophy, I can't imagine that coming into play again with the legacy of police brutality. So on the one hand, you've got police brutality. On the other hand, you've got criminals operating wantonly. There's actually a recall vote for the district attorney, Chesa Boudin, the son of one of the Weathermen heirs. He's probably one of the more left-leaning district attorneys, and he likely will get recalled. We have an Oakland mayoral race in the fall, and I'm hoping, you know, there will be less tolerance for, you know, homeless tents everywhere. We're trapped in this kind of awful position between police brutality and criminals operating too freely. New topic, professional sports teams. In the 1970s, sports teams were expanding to California, and the San Francisco MSA is the second largest in the state. I am sure Oakland rolled out the red carpet for these teams. Around 1970, we had four professional teams. We had the hockey team, we had the Warriors, we had the A's, and we had the Raiders. There's no city of around 400,000 people that had four major league teams. There's none that had three. So Oakland is uniquely successful in building the Coliseum and Arena. That was the coup. The old philanthropic elite, Henry J. Kaiser, Stephen Bechtel, and others, they were behind it. We used to have that kind of old philanthropy in Oakland. We don't anymore. And that's a lot of the reason we've lost the teams. Are other institutions packing up for San Francisco? My college... California College of Arts is moving to San Francisco and abandoning the Oakland campus. They're selling it after 100 years in Oakland. They're leaving Oakland because of that allure of San Francisco. Universities rarely move. What's the backstory? The school was founded in Berkeley. It moved to the Oakland campus in 1923. And in the 80s, they started design and architecture programs, graphic design, industrial architecture, et cetera. And they did it in San Francisco. 
the Oakland campus, which is more fine arts, has been atrophying. And I think the board shifted from the East Bay to the West. They decided to consolidate everything in San Francisco and leave Oakland behind because there isn't the money there. With CCA, my school leaving and the Raiders and Warriors leaving, the Oakland Tribune folded. We're becoming sort of like the residential and office suburb of the west side of the Bay. We don't have our own wealthy individuals who back things. And all these things are part of sad institutional decline in the East Bay. Transportation. California is the land of the freeway, and Oakland has its fair share. In Chicago, when they built the Eisenhower Expressway, it cut the west side in two. City planning and freeways is complicated. What happened in Oakland? Wow, we're the center of the Bay Area freeway network. Isn't this amazing? We have great freeway access, but at the same time, freeways really tore the city into lots of pieces. We built about half of what was proposed. The next topic is slum clearance. Howard Husak discussed public policy where they cleared neighborhoods in industrial cities to build retail malls and to integrate white middle-class residents with lower-income African-Americans. We discussed the tragedy of destroying poor neighborhoods, and we specifically discussed the knocking down of a section of Boston. What happened in Oakland? In Oakland, like Boston, Government Center and the West End was an attempt to basically sanitize itself and create a new environment for tourism and white collar and hotels and cultural institutions. Boston ends up with Faneuil Hall, the New England Aquarium. They basically eliminated poor people from central Boston. Oakland tried the same thing. <laughs> they took out 18 blocks right in the heart of Oakland to build a huge shopping mall, five anchor stores, that was the goal, and surrounded by office towers. The shopping mall never happened because it was catering to white women from the hills and suburbs, and the stores didn't believe they would go to downtown Oakland. So the shopping mall failed. It was a really misguided effort. And of the office towers, very few came. They demolished 50 blocks for industry and this big urban renewal project called Acorn. And the goal there was similar. We're going to turn a very poor black slum, lower-income black slum, into a middle-income, mixed-race development that will provide a buffer for downtown between that and the rest of poor Black West Oakland so that downtown can become like downtown San Francisco, this gleaming cultural office, white-collar district. Didn't work. The two biggest slum clearance, which was Acorn and City Center in downtown, were unmitigated disasters. Next topic, museums and cultural institutions. In your book, you discuss how the white weed got run out of town. What happened? The Bechtels and Kaisers banded together in the 50s alongside the Oakland Tribune, pushing for a consolidated state-of-the-art museum downtown, right on the edge of the lake. And they built an extraordinary building. It was a real triumph for Oakland to have this museum. But at the same time, it comes at that period when the demographics are changing so much. And the museum, you know, it's still a white institution serving the affluent whites. And it makes tremendous efforts to be a multicultural museum for all of Oakland. The last great project was at Oakland Ballet and Oakland Symphony. They took an old movie palace and turned it into a concert hall. And it failed. The Oakland Symphony didn't make it. And the ballet also has struggled. It's dark most nights. It's not functioning, I think, the way people would have thought when it was converted in the early 1970s. 
Oakland now has a substantial Asian population. How has that impacted the culture of the city? Chinatown is the model for a 24-7 district downtown. When I moved to Oakland in 1981, it was the only place you'd go at night in downtown because it was alive. There were people on the streets. Everywhere else, people went home after 5 o'clock. And then with the big migration starting in the late 70s, you started to get Vietnamese, Cambodian, Lao populations. It's been a boon to Oakland. I currently live in Miami, and the town is booming. The cranes are out. I've actually never seen so much residential building. Yesterday, I heard a lot of noise. I looked over, and my neighbor's house was knocked down. Every house in my block will get bulldozed in the next few years. What's happening in Oakland? It's not actively pursuing change. Within a mile of my house or more, I don't think there's a new building built in the last 45 years. Not one. Very little commercial building. The affluent NIMBY districts don't want development. They would freak out if you took out four two-story buildings and put up a 20-story high-rise. People love the Bay Area. You know, they talk a lot about how the Bay Area is special how it's the most beautiful place on earth. And so there's a resistance to change much stronger than you'd have in Miami or in Texas. Florida and Texas are fast-growing red states, and California is losing residents. Is this related? It's expensive to do business in California. It's expensive to live in California. It's a less friendly business climate, and people want it that way. But they're upset then that it's so expensive. I lived in the Mission District in San Francisco, Artists and bohemian types moved there. And then they got really upset when it started getting affluent and they couldn't afford it. And they would start decrying the lawyers who came in. And I would say, well, what about you? I mean, you're not a working class immigrant. I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? So many people are just busting to get out and start living again. And I'm optimistic that that's going to bring a kind of positivity that the pandemic has kind of dampened dramatically. Miami has been open and parting for over a year now. What's happening in Oakland? One of the city's unofficial names has been Oaksterdam. Oakland pioneered the legalization of cannabis. So if you walk around Oakland, you smell cannabis everywhere. And there are beer gardens and wine bars and you know cocktail lounges all throughout the city. So this city too likes a good party. Thanks, Mitchell. Let's move on to our second speaker, Tom Sankton, the author of a new book, The Last Baron, The Paris Kidnapping That Brought Down an Empire. Tom, go ahead. On the morning of January 23, 1978, Baron Edouard Ompin was snatched off the street in front of his home in Paris. The kidnappers promptly cut off his little finger and sent it to the family, along with a ransom note demanding 80 million francs, worth about $70 million today. They threatened to send other body parts unless the money was paid immediately. The French press went ballistic and called it the kidnapping of the century. There had been dozens of other kidnappings in Europe during the 1970s, the so-called decade of lead. What made this one special? The identity of the victim and the importance of his industrial empire. The Ampin Schneider Group was a sprawling multinational comprising 175 companies, ranging from transport, banking, to steelmaking, armaments, and most important, nuclear energy. It was central to French economic and security interests. So who was Baron Ampin? Edouard Ampin, Wado to his friends, 
was the 40-year-old grandson of the company's legendary founder. Alpin was tall, athletic, and movie star handsome. He was rich, drove fancy cars, lived in a chateau, and vacationed on the Riviera. But he had two flaws, a weakness for high-stakes gambling and women. During his 63-day incarceration, scandalous details about his private life leaked out into the press, doing permanent damage to his reputation and ultimately triggering his downfall. The arc of Vampin's rise and fall has an aspect of Greek tragedy. It's also a multifaceted saga, spanning three generations and featuring a cast of fascinating characters. The first Baron Vampin was a self-made man built on railroads, energy, finance, and civil engineering. His exploits included the building of the Paris Metro, railroad construction all over Europe and parts of Asia, gold mining in the Congo, and the creation of a whole city on the Egyptian desert, Heliopolis, the city of the sun. His achievements led the Belgian king, Leopold II, to ennoble him with the baron's title and a freshly minted coat of arms. When the first baron died in 1929, he was one of the world's wealthiest men. The founder's eldest son, Jean Ompin, nicknamed Johnny, inherited the baron's title and his command over the Ompin industrial empire. Handsome and charming, Johnny was a hedonistic playboy who preferred cruising around the world on his yacht and throwing wild parties in his chateau to minding the office. Johnny was a boozer, a gambler, and a serial womanizer who counted Josephine Baker among his many conquests. But the woman he finally fell for was an American exotic dancer from Columbus, Ohio, Roselle Rowland. Her specialty was dancing nude, covered only by a thin coat of gold paint, hence her nickname, Goldie. Johnny married her in 1937 after she gave birth to a son, Idwal, a.k.a. Wado, the one who would later be kidnapped. Johnny and Goldie lived the high life, throwing extravagant Gatsby-like parties at their chateau and hobnobbing with Europe's rich and famous. During the war, Johnny's guest list included high-ranking Nazi officers with whom he maintained a cozy relationship throughout the occupation. At war's end, he was investigated for collaboration, but fled the country and died of cancer before he could be tried. Finding herself cut out of the will, Goldie promptly married Johnny's impotent cousin in order to retain her title and her fortune. But she lived apart from him in her own chateau. She paid little attention to her son, Wado, preferring the company of a famous jockey with whom she had a love child, Diane. Another fascinating character was the head kidnapper, Alain Cayol. Cayol had been born into a wealthy family but turned to a life of crime as an act of revolt against his strict father. Kyle was educated at posh boarding schools and nurtured a passion for books and grand opera. After an early career as a burglar and bank robber, he organized a motley band of thugs and misfits with the aim of kidnapping a high-profile figure and holding them for ransom. Wado was then at the apogee of his career, a self-proclaimed master of the universe, whose image as a super-rich capitalist made him an obvious target for the left-leaning Kyle and his band. While researching this book, I had the good fortune to enlist Kyle as a key source. 
Now 80 years old, a free man after spending decades in prison, Kyle told me the inside story about how his gang carried out the kidnapping, along with the fly-on-the-wall details about Watto's long incarceration and a freezing stone quarry. He also provided a first-person account of the shootout with police that left him wounded and a fellow kidnapper dead when they came to collect the ransom. Kyle's arrest led to Watto's release and set in motion the manhunt that finally netted his eight co-conspirators. But for Watto, it was anything but a happy ending. Because of the revelations about his private life, he emerged from his long captivity as damaged goods, lost his family and his control over the Ampan group. Within a few years, the industrial empire built by his grandfather was spun off in bits and pieces, and the very Ampan name disappeared. Sad to say, Watto never kicked the gambling habit and it ruined him. When he died in 2018 at the age of 80, he was practically penniless. As I wrote in the preface, this is a cautionary tale about a man who threw caution to the wind. That's my six minutes. Thanks, Tom. Why do we hear stories of kidnappings in the U.S. and Europe today? Wado is kidnapped in 1978, and this was part of a pattern of kidnappings. The 1970s were riddled with kidnappings, especially in Europe, Italy, Germany, France. Also in the U.S., of course, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, which was a year or two before the Elmpan kidnapping. The Getty kidnapping, Hans Martin Schleyer in Germany, was the uh, head of the uh, Employers uh, Association in Germany, a very powerful industrialist. He was kidnapped and assassinated by the Red Brigades. What you had was two different kinds of kidnapping. It was the ideological kidnapping, anti-capitalist, radical left kidnapping, and there was the kidnapping for money. Slayer was obviously a radical political kidnapping. So was Aldo Moreau, former prime minister of Italy, kidnapped by the Red Brigades and assassinated. When Ompan was kidnapped, the police assumed that it was political because he was a high-profile industrialist. It was only after the uh, ransom note was received that they realized that, that it was actually uh, for money. The kidnappers get no ransom. One is killed in a police shootout and the others go to prison for decades. Is Waldo the end of the run of kidnappings because it's perceived not to be worth the effort? Waldo's ransom was not paid. His kidnappers were foiled, one killed, one badly wounded, and the others tried and jailed. And the French police considered that an end to the spate of kidnappings in France because it just showed it wouldn't pay. The police chief, Pierre Ottavioli, had this absolutely no ransom approach to kidnappings. The police chief, Adivioli, has this ingenious plan to arrest one of the kidnappers and then subsequently exchange the criminal for Watto. Tell us about this unconventional idea. Pierre Ottavioli, a legendary figure in his own right, his plan was to lure the kidnappers to a rendezvous and to grab at least one of them. Ottavioli assigned a Eurasian 
martial arts master to immobilize the kidnappers with his bare hands. When he stopped his car along a highway where he was supposed to meet the kidnappers, a tow truck pulled up behind him to the emergency lane and thought he needed to have a tow. He got out of the car to wave him off, and then all of a sudden, two of the kidnappers kind of leap over a wall, jump in the car, start the engine, and take off with a fake ransom in the trunk. And they were immediately set upon by police cars, motorcycles. Otavio Lee set this ambush to grab one of these guys and hold him hostage. There was a huge shootout. One of them was killed. The other, the head kidnapper, Alan Cayol, was badly wounded. He became their hostage. The police put pressure on him because if anything had happened to Watto, he would have been held responsible and France still had capital punishment by the guillotine. They put enough pressure on him to make a phone call and have Watto released. Big-time kidnappings require a large team to plan, assault, guard, and feed the victim. It isn't easy to find, motivate, and manage such a large group. People make mistakes. What happened? It was really a motley band of thugs and car thieves and pimps and drug pushers and bank robbers. They had a powerful esprit de corps. They were loyal to Kyle. Kyle held them hostage in a way because he could have led the police to every single one of them if they abandoned him. They took a vote on whether to execute the hostage, and he was spared by a vote. How did they come to choose Watto as their kidnapping victim? They considered other people. They considered Marcel Dassault, the aviation industrialist, Lilian Betancourt, the uh, L'Oreal heiress, who's a heroine of my previous book, The Betancourt Affair. Wado came to their attention because he was the subject of a number of investigative articles in the satirical weekly, the Canal Enchaîné which pointed out that he fired a lot of workers. He was an easy target because he had very regular habits. They knew where he lived. His fancy apartment building on Avenue Foch parallel to a service road. They figured a way to trap him in that narrow service road. The initial police response to Waldo's kidnapping was mind-boggling. The police literally closed off the city, using roadblocks searching for Waldo, causing an enormous traffic jam. The thought that the capital city of a G7 country could be shut down over a single k- kidnapping seems incredible. Why did the French go to these lengths? The Ampère Schneider group employed 150,000 people. The Ampère group was central to French economic and security interests. There was something of a panic, and there was there was concern. Also, leftist kidnappings and terrorist strikes were also taking place. The then president, Giscard d'Estaing, who was a personal friend of Ampère, was concerned because he was facing parliamentary elections in a couple of months. And he was concerned that the leftist coalition led by François Mitterrand was threatening to actually to gain a majority in that election. They had to make every effort to find the empire and put a stop to this and make a show of force. This primarily motivated Giscard to order one of the biggest manhunts in French history. There is a conflict of interest between the family and the state. The family wants Watto back. The state wants to end kidnappings for the future and is willing to risk Watto's death. Describe the conflict of interest on whether to pay the ransom. The days immediately following the kidnapping, there was tension between the police position, which was no ransom, 
and the family's position, but they weren't to pay. At the family members didn't know the state of Wado's finances. His daughters, who were then 19, the other 18, had a 13-year-old son. The kids said, okay, just sell a couple of companies and pay the guys. End of story. They didn't seem to realize that having a preponderant share of stock in the Pompan Group didn't give him the ownership of all these different companies. And they didn't realize that his actual financial holdings were nowhere near the amount that was being demanded. Most of his fortune was in the form of stock. They couldn't pay the 80,000 francs, roughly equivalent to $70 million today. They came up with a plan to borrow some funds from the company and banks. They were able to put together a little more than a third of what was being asked for. And they were ready to meet the kidnappers, hand over that money, and hopefully end the story. What happened was the kidnappers... During phone exchanges, they said, you have the money? And he said, I have $30 million. And they said, no, it's $80 million. And they said, I'm sorry, you know, all we have is $30 million. That's a lot of money. You can have it. The guy on the phone said, tomorrow morning, you'll have a cadaver. And he hung up the phone. That was the end of the attempt to pay the ransom or part of the ransom. From that point on, the police position on no ransom payment. Wido's financial situation is normal for a rich guy. The spouse and kids have no idea the level of wealth or how to monetize it within hours to fund the kidnappers' demands. The kidnappers went barking up the wrong tree, and they just assumed because the Ompen Schneider Group had annual sales of $20 billion, just take a little bit of that and throw it to these kidnappers. They had no idea of the difference between this personal wealth and the annual sales of the sprawling industrial group. To their mind, $20 billion in sales, he's good for it. Another fascinating angle to the story is that Wada was CEO of the Empan Schneider Group. But the company took the position that the kidnapping was a personal matter, not a corporate one. If the CEO of Exxon had been kidnapped, I just can't imagine they would turn to the spouse and say, sell your stock or we'll give you a secured loan. I mean, Wado's last name is the same as the company's. Why did management tell the spouse to work it out on her own? His number two, Rene Engen, a very good manager, saw his chance to take over the leadership of the group. Apart from Engen's personal ambition, the revelations about Wado's private life, his obscene gambling losses, his mistresses and his private trysting apartments, was doing great damage to the image of the group. And it's going to be difficult to have shareholders accept that this very tarnished CEO would continue as before. Although the normal reaction would be, as you said, he's kidnapped because he's the head of our group. Let's bail him out. But it didn't work out that way. Watto is held naked, chained by the neck to a wall in a damp and freezing tunnel with a bucket to piss in. The press have Watto on the front page every day with new revelations leaked by the police about his multi-million dollar gambling debts and his mistresses. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. How could the police have violated their duty to leak this personal information to the press in his most vulnerable moments? I mean, it's gross. That's an excellent question. I was able to get to five of the police detectives involved in this case, and one who he had his fingers in every aspect of it. He, he claims that they didn't intentionally leak. There were 80 detectives involved in the investigation. The press had a press office in the police headquarters at the time. So there was this fraternization between 
journalists and police officers, they go out and have a meal together and talk about all sorts of aspects of all the cases they were working on. And so probably in this unofficial, unintended, unfortunate way, some of these details just kind of leaked out. The press got salacious photos of his mistresses from his secret tryst apartment. That doesn't sound like an unintended comment over a beer. I mean, come on. Yeah. Wado was shamed. But this is France. I mean, the guy had gambling debts and a mistress. President Mitterrand had two families. Why the shock and horror? This is France. I don't think that in itself would have been so devastating, but it certainly was to the family. That led to the destruction of his marriage and the breakup of his family to gambling. And the heedlessness would expose him potentially to threats and blackmail or indebtedness to the mafia. Some people said his finger was cut off by the criminal elements because of unpaid debts, which was not true. But this idea that left him vulnerable to manipulation by criminal elements. The gambling was really the main thing. But also the total lack of judgment that that shows. Do you want a guy running your huge industrial group that has a monopoly of nuclear construction in France? Do you want a guy who bets a million francs and has these all-night betting competitions with Saudi princes and these casinos in the south of France? Potentially a security breach and also a glaring lack of good judgment on the kind of person you want at the head of a big company. Next topic, the pinky. Watto's kidnappers send the cops the top joint of his pinky in a formaldehyde solution hours after the kidnapping. With the Getty kidnapping, they sent his ear. Why the body mutilation when you could send a photograph with him holding that day's newspaper? Well, when I asked the head kidnapper, Kayo, that question, he said that they had made a, a game plan right from the beginning how they'd grab him, where they'd take him, how they'd watch over him in this tunnel, the ransom that they were going to ask for, and to cut off the tip of his little finger. And I asked him why they did that, and it was not to prove that they had him. He said the stun effect. They wanted to stun the police, the family, the group, and show they meant business to get their attention and show that they were ruthless and with the threat of other body parts to follow meant time was of the essence and that if the money wasn't forthcoming, things could get a lot worse than the tip of his pinky. It was just a conscious decision. This is serious. You guys better do what we say. Another Getty Snatch comparison is the kidnapper's remote hideout. It was impossible to keep the prisoner there for a long period. It was cold and damp. Everybody was miserable. Kidnappings put stress on everybody. Absolutely. They expected this to be over in two or three days. They thought, okay, for a couple of days, the guys can hang out and eat canned food. And then it went on for weeks. And then after a, you know, a month or so, people were grumbling, threatening to defect. And finally, they chose to move him to another place, which was an apartment in Paris. Then they moved him to a house in the suburbs, a little bungalow in the suburbs. Three or four of them just kind of just went AWOL. They said, we've had it. It's kind of like herding cats. They all had their own motivations, their own temperaments, their own degrees of intelligence. Kyle was very intelligent. Others were like borderline retarded. It was difficult to keep the group together over that long period. Kyle's told me they never planned for anything to go beyond four days. After that point, everything else was improvisation. Family dynamics are challenging in the best of times for wealthy families. I mean, you saw succession. 
Now with the kidnapping of the leader under stress, bad things happen. It's as if a bomb has been thrown into the living room. The family actually is very divided over how to deal with this. First of all, the money really wasn't there. Wado's mother was a real piece of work, uh, Goldie, former exotic dancer, stripper. She immediately remarried after her husband's death. Wado's father's impotent cousin in order to retain her fortune and title, and she was just ruthless in pursuing her own interests. And then in the first discussions about trying to gather the money for the ransom, she said, I'm not going to pay a penny. Silvana, the wife, she offered to sell her jewelry. The kids just said to sell a few companies. Son-in-law, the husband of the eldest daughter, who was an American, wanted to jump in and seize control of the company by having Water declared dead and then come in and take over. That One of the effects of this kidnapping was to reveal the tensions in this family. The eldest daughter and the son-in-law were estranged from Wado after his release. Wado was estranged from his mother when he found out what her attitude had been. The wife, Silvana, it was kind of a mutual decision to divorce. Next topic, Stockholm Syndrome and kidnappings. Patty Hearst was a teenager when she was abducted and ends up sleeping with her kidnapper and joining their terrorist activities. What happened with Wado? It's a common situation during long kidnapping where a hostage realizes that his or her life depends on their relationship with their jailers. They try to get along, then they can be treated better, not killed, not tortured. Watto decided very early on to accept this with dignity and stoicism. He never complained about anything. They were amazed by his calm dignity, as they put it. And there's a way of uh, manipulating kidnapped victims by telling them that we're your friends, that the ransom was not forthcoming. They don't care about you. They've written you off. They really hammered this home. The guys on the outside, they're the enemies. Sort of like Bette Midler and Ruthless People. Stockholm Syndrome, in this case, had a pretty strong effect. After he was released, he was immediately interrogated by the police. He gave them very little specific information about the kidnappers. He felt some strange, lingering sense of loyalty to his former jailers to the point where he tried not to cooperate too much with the investigators. I think this was a little bit more complicated. The jailers had threatened Waddle that they would create violence after he was released unless he did what they said. He feared that the kidnappers were going to come after him, after he was released. They made him sign IOUs, saying that he would personally pay them ransom. They even had him put his thumbprint on the documents. They would call him with a certain code word. That meant that he had to pay off within 24 hours. If he didn't do it, they would just shoot somebody at random in the street. Was Watto angry with the police for ruining his reputation? He was very bitter towards the police, and particularly the revelations about his private life, and they had not been particularly competent liberating him. Two branches of the police that were involved. One was the investigative police. The other was the intervention squad, the commandos who showed up on the highway and took part in the shootout with the kidnappers. He respected them. They were the guys who were risking their necks. They were the heroes who led to his liberation. The ones who were back in the office pushing paper, making phone calls, he had much less respect for. In the TV show, Law and Order, the first half is the investigation and the second half is the trial. What was interesting about the trial? Boom, boom. None of them were actually accused or charged with kidnapping. 
they were all charged with the sequestration or illegal imprisonment. Coyote attempted to present himself as an unloved child, a victim of a family that was not sufficiently supportive. He'd taken the wrong path and he knew he shouldn't have done it, but it wasn't really his fault. And then the judge cut him off after a couple of minutes of that. And that was pretty much the end of his defense strategy. Coyote had been caught and wounded on the, on the highway. He couldn't claim that he didn't know anything about it. Next topic was the judge's ruling about the evidence. In France, when there is an interrogation of a witness, a magistrate must be present. And anything said without the magistrate will not be evidence in court. And it turns out that during the discussion with the police, Kello is asked the question, why did you kidnap Wado? And he goes through his analysis of why Wado was the perfect choice. Yeah, that was fascinating. Kyle was still in the hospital. He was exfiltrated to police headquarters, and they put pressure on him, and he might be facing the guillotine. Uh, you know, if anything happened to Wado, he should make a phone call and get him released, which he did. And after the police received word that Wado had actually been released, Kyle was still in the police chief's office along with six or eight other senior detectives. And this moment of victory and everybody's feeling, okay, we solved this thing, we've liberated the Baron. The chief puts his legs up on the desk and he says, Kyle, why did you choose Wado? And of course, he had never admitted that he'd kidnapped Wado. He said, we figured out he'd be easy to capture. And then all of a sudden he shut up because he realized he'd said too much. Now, none of that was theoretically admissible in court. The notes that they were taking, since there was no magistrate present, it's not a, a formal deposition. It couldn't be admitted into the court hearing. Andre Bizot, when the trial finally happened several years later, was assigned the role of explaining the investigation from the stand. No documents, nothing. The judges is saying, now, how did the interrogation proceed and what did you find? Andre Bizot pulled out the bomb and said, we asked him why he had done this, and he said this and this and this and this. So... Pandemonium, uh, George Kejman, uh, Kyle's lawyer, jumps to his feet. Inadmissible, it's not possible. The judges then withdraw to the chambers. An hour later, they came out and they said, yes, it is admissible. It was just like the death knell for the, for the kidnappers because it was a strong indication that Kyle had been involved from the beginning and admitted as much. It was a pretty important moment during the trial. Wado comes out of this experience a broken man. He leaves France divorced, disillusioned, and he leaves with one of his mistresses. After six months, he's finding his footing and returns to Europe to reclaim his position in the company. How does the kidnapping affect the rest of his life? He wrote his own memoir. It's an autobiography, but it mainly centers on this case and his experience and lessons learned. It had been a, kind of an enlightening experience. His values had been all wrong. He didn't appreciate things like family and uh, just the simple things in life. He felt that somehow he'd come out of it a better person. Unfortunately, he, he never got rid of the gambling addiction and ultimately ruined him. And that's what gives it this Shakespearean or, or Greek tragedy aspect, which is that you're seeing the fall of a powerful man, not simply due to this unexpected event, but also due to his own flaws. And it's a cautionary tale about a man who threw caution to the wind. He was a victim of his own weaknesses and his own flaws. Thanks to Mitchell and Tom for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. 
The first speaker will be Jeremy Dauber, a professor at Columbia and the author of Jewish Comedy, A Serious History. I love comedy and want to know more about what makes Jewish comedy special and so funny. Our second speaker is Matthew Continetti, who is a resident fellow in social, cultural, and constitutional studies at AEI. Matthew has a new book out that was released this week entitled The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. I want to learn about how the right has changed from William Buckley to Rush Limbaugh to Trump. In case you missed last week's show, check it out. It was on the war in Ukraine. The speakers include the war professor Anthony King, the retired General Paul Kern, and the author of Putin's World, Angela Stent. As a reminder, I'm looking to hire interns to work with me on the podcast, so let me know if you're interested. If you wish to listen to a replay of today's What Happens X program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.